the moment I said no, I really knew I was going to throw everything away. And I was willing to do that because I was being principled for the moment, you know, and it reversed. So how can you predict something like that? You know, it's just, it's just, so life is that way. You know, you never know. Sometimes you say yes and it becomes no. Sometimes you say no, it becomes yes. Sometimes you say maybe. And it's just, it's just a bunch of these circumstances. Uh, That's what I find. but, but again, there is this whole idea of being in the room, being so you can't just sit home and be in your bed and wait for the phone call. <laughs> you know what I mean? It may come. It may come. But it's better to be out and be seen on the street uh, if you want the phone call. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success. And I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. I created this podcast and the School for Good Living to share what I've learned and to keep exploring the question, what does it mean to live a good life and how can we do it? Despite my privilege, I lived for decades in a pretty dark place. And I know that living is often a painful, difficult and messy business. But I also know that it can be wonderful beyond imagination and that it's a skill at which we can improve. That's why every episode is a conversation with an author who's an expert regarding spirituality, health, relationships, work, rest, and play, or money. I also ask my guests about their creative habits, routines, and mindsets, and what they've done to get their books written, published, and read. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Bernie Roth, author of The Achievement Habit, Stop Wishing, Start Doing, and Take Command of Your Life. Bernie came to the Stanford Design Division faculty in 1962. When Bernie arrived at Stanford, he was the youngest faculty member. Now, nearly 60 years later, he's the oldest. Bernie is one of the founders of Stanford's D-School and is active in its development and currently serves as academic director. His primary intention as an educator and a person is to empower his students, colleagues, and friends to have fulfilling lives. Bernie is the kind of teacher we all wish we have. We're fortunate if we have one in our academic career. It was in 2003 that he joined a group of colleagues to bring more cross-disciplinary collaboration into education. That was when he formed the D-School. Bernie encouraging people to take action, to produce a result that matters to them, something they've always wanted to do but hadn't yet done for whatever reason, or to resolve a problem in their life. I hope this conversation and Bernie's work, if you're not already familiar with it, is useful and inspiring for you to help you get past whatever obstacles you might find yourself facing or the ones that you might be anticipating that are keeping you stuck before you've even reached them. I'm really grateful that I had the chance to connect directly with and learn from Bernie. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Bernie Roth. Bernie, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. Will you tell me, please, what is life about? I guess life is about itself. It's, uh, you know, it just is, I would say. It's, uh, the rest is all made up, like, uh, like it's going on in our lives right now. A lot of people are making up a lot of stuff. And uh, people did that before social media, too, but in different ways. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, life, to me, life is just, you know, it's there. And uh, I'm driven by something called a life force, which I 
call, just the energy I feel about being alive. Beyond that, maybe I'm not thoughtful enough. What is it? One, one who doesn't examine life, it's not worth living, something like that. So I don't know. I think it's worth living, but I don't go beyond that meaning. Okay, fair enough. So Bernie, what are you curious about? What are you passionate about? What have you dedicated your life to? You know, this is redundant, but I've dedicated to living. I'm just passionate about just being here and the energy that my daily activities provide. And uh, I don't have like a long-term plan for my life or uh, something I need to achieve before I die. I just have the, the sense of day-to-day living as best I can and being as good a husband and father and teacher and friend and everything else a person in the the world I can be and if the day goes well I feel very excited and can hardly wait for the next day if the day doesn't go so well I don't feel as excited but I still can't wait for the next day (laughs) so so it's you know it's it sounds very I'm, I'm a New York boy at heart but I sounds very Californian I'm sure yeah yeah yeah, as I understand, you've been in California for about the last six decades. Yeah, right. I just got off the boat in 1962. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. That's some incredible longevity, and not just in the state of California, but at Stanford. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. That is pretty incredible to be it's the in. the oldest guy in my department when we got here, and now I'm the oldest by far. So That's amazing. That's amazing. In your book, The Achievement Habit, you write... I have had a long and satisfying career at Stanford, and it took a host of improbable events for me to get here in the first place. My life is punctuated by milestones that would never have happened except for the combination of unplanned and improbable chance events. So you mentioned this, but you talk specifically about two phone calls that you got. And this is around a part in the book where you talk about there are two extreme types of people in the world, those who say yes to everything and those who say no to everything. But you put yourself somewhere in between the yes to everything and the no to everything, and that might have opened the door to these two phone calls. Will you talk about that and, and what that like what that way of living has yielded for you? Sure. Well, it, it's uh, it's sort of a crapshoot, you know. It's like, um, and it's sort of like the lady and the tiger. You know, you don't know which door you open. You only, <laughs> you only know which one you open. You don't know what happens if you open the other door. So yeah. in my life, as I said, I don't have like a life plan or huge goals. And it's just a little every every day I have or many times I have something I want to do. And it's just a matter of doing it and getting it done or working towards it or we're dealing with that. And uh, I find that very satisfying. It's exciting. For example, I've taught a class, for example, the one the book is written about mainly I've taught that class for over 40 years, okay? Now, I'm in an environment in these school where people are changing everything weekly, practically. And I'm not, I'm, as I say, but to me, it's different because I go in with just a goal of sort of where I went ahead. And then what happens is what happens in the class. And it's always different because there are different people there, there are different issues they bring up. And to me, the challenge is dealing with all those issues in real time. And that gets me high and excited. And, and that's what it's about. So from the outside, it looks like, well, this guy's been doing the same thing for 40 years. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm doing a different thing every day, every time I go in there. Like I'm going to, next Wednesday, I start the first class for this coming winter quarter. 
and I'm really excited to go in there. You know, now I've gone in there 40 times the first day, <laughs> never yeah. on Zoom, I must say, but <laughs> still in all, uh, it's exciting. So that's to me the idea of like sort of being in the moment is, is, is that is what people would call it. And I find that a lot of my things are that way. And I'm lucky to have a DNA that I don't worry about and obsess and, and ruminate about stuff a lot. I just handle what needs to be handled. And so uh, in my case, what happens next is often not planned. It's just a matter of an accident happening and the things you're referring to uh and I'd say almost every big thing in my life, you know, is something that I hadn't planned that it occurred. And uh, it was wonderful if it was wonderful in general. You know, I'm glad I did it. But it could have been I would have said no. I don't know. So the one case was uh, someone – I, I knew this fellow, this professor sort of, uh, you know, just – he was an acquaintance. He, he was at Michigan somewhere, I think uh, – not the University of Michigan, but maybe Michigan State. Or something. And I knew him just, you know, from meetings over the years. And I get a phone call from him. He heard a talk I'd given in Portland, a meeting. Uh, and uh, he said, you know, I have some money from the uh, American Society of Engineering Education and the NSF. And I want professors to do workshops about uh, kind of creativity and uh, satisfaction as being a professor. And your talk... Really, you know, I could see you were interested in that stuff. I'd like to support you to give one of these workshops. And I'm saying, in my mind, no way. What, what do I, I ha I'm so busy. What am I doing? And I, uh, I'm literally about to hang up. I'm literally, you know, not rudely, but I'm saying, no, 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 Mike, no way, no way. And as the phone is halfway away from my mouth, I realize there's this colleague of mine who really, uh, deserves to be promoted, but he'll never get promoted because nobody, he's one of these guys who's an inside guy and at Stanford, the name of the game is the world has to know you. So I just flashed my mind. If I make a workshop, I could include this guy and people from all around the world will get to know him and he'll get promoted. So immediately the phone went back. I said, yeah, gladly do it, Mike. Thanks a lot for thinking of me. And we went on and that started what we call the creativity workshop. And me and this colleague who unfortunately is dead now, but he's one of the people the book is dedicated to. Uh, we, we went around the world doing this workshop and it came out to be a very important part of my life. It's called the creativity workshop. So it's again, it's just this accidental phone call by someone I hardly knew. And it's something which my first impulse was no way. And then this thought came in my mind how useful it could be. Now, it turns out the guy never got promoted because he would never do the paperwork to get promoted. And he's dead now. It didn't matter. But it really was an example of just this accident. And the uh, other thing I talk about, which is, well, there, there are several of them, but the one that's really big is how I got to Stanford in that uh, it, it's a sort of shaggy story. But basically, a invitation to a meeting in at Yale went to Stanford to a professor whose name was John Arnold, but but the meeting went instead to Frank Arnold, and Frank, being Frank, had nothing to do with the field, but he figured a free trip to Yale, why not? So he said yes, and he went to Yale and he went to this meeting and he met my thesis advisor, who was a professor at Columbia, 
And then when, it, when I graduated, my thesis advisor said, where do you want to apply to teach? I said, I want to teach somewhere. He said, well, I met this guy from Stanford. If you want, I could write him a letter. So I said, sure, great. I heard Stanford's a nice place. And he wrote a letter to Frank Arnold. This time, Frank was nice enough to take the letter and give it to the right on, give it to John Arnold. And that's kind of how I got, I got an invitation to go out and I got an interview and so forth. And it's a, it's a longer story. Get the book and read it. It's kind of, <laughs> it was it's amazing. That, uh, this crazy thing of the wrong guy getting an invitation, accepting an invitation he shouldn't have accepted, then getting the letter and giving it to the right guy. I mean, you know, how can you control that kind of stuff? And actually, when I went to Stanford, I had already accepted a job at Columbia University to be an assistant professor. And I loved my professor. I loved New York. There's no way I was going to go out. But I figured the world owed me a free vacation to California. So I went out, out for the interview with my wife on the train. And we just came as a lark. And I met this guy, John Arnold, who was a very unusual person. And he, I could see there was something different going on here than I was used to in New York. And they offered me a job miraculously within a few hours, which doesn't happen, but it happened then. And all the way home on the train, I was disturbed, which I never am. What am I going to do? They offered me this job. It's interesting, but I'm really supposed to work in Columbia. We start in three weeks. So I'm not going to double cross my professor. And so I worked. And when I got off the train, when I got into Columbia the first time, he was very nice to me, professor. He said, what's happening? I said, they offered me a job. He said, thank you. They're building up. Stanford's going to be a really big place soon, and you'll be in on the ground floor. So he made it so easy for me. I still cry when I think about that. And so that's how I got to Stanford. But I, there was no way I was going to go there. I just went out for a vacation, and there was all these coincidences with the letter beforehand. How can you plan for that stuff? It's impossible, yeah. right? Yeah, serious. What's your view of how that unfolded? Is it is it luck? Is it yeah? Well, it's providence. Is it yeah, just yeah. Well, well, yeah. Well, people say being prepared is important. But, you know, so I had to be in the room, right? So I had sure. to have the credentials. I had to have stayed up and done done all that problem sets and done my thesis and all that. So that got me into the room. But beyond being in the room, it's dumb luck. It really is dumb luck. And it's just these interactions, you know. There's another story in the book of some guy who offered me some big job uh, as a, on his board of directors. And when he laid out what his company would do, uh, I thought, there's no way I'm going to do this. And uh, I told him, no, I, I'm not going to do it. And when he asked me, why not? I explained what was wrong. And he said, oh, I totally misconstrued you. And he backtracked completely and came over to my side. So it made it easy for me to say yes. And it turned out to have been the, one of the biggest financial wins or gains I ever had in my life. Okay, now at the moment I said no, I really knew I was going to throw everything away. And I was willing to do that because I was being principled for the moment, you know, and it reversed. So how can you predict something like that? You know, it's just, it's just uh, so life is that way. You know, you never know. Sometimes you say yes and it becomes no. Sometimes you say no, it becomes yes. Sometimes you say maybe. And you know, <laughs> it's just, it's just a bunch of these circumstances. Uh, that's what I find. And, but, but again, there is this whole idea of being in the room, being so you can't just sit home and be in your bed and wait for the phone call. <laughs> 
You know what I mean? It may come. It may come. But it's better to be out and be seen on the street uh, if you want the phone call. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. Well, and something also you talk about is reasons. You say that you do what you do or we do what we do, and then we make up the reason for doing it. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And so what I wonder with that is what do we use as a guide to make decisions, right? Is it just truly our desire? Is it our logic, something else? Yeah. Well, most of the stuff, I ask you, you, how do you decide to breathe? You didn't wake up this morning and think about breathing, did you? No. Most, no. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't know you, but I don't think you did. Right? Most of us don't, right? Or yep. walking or going to pee or whatever you did in the morning. Or maybe you thought about breakfast. Maybe you did. I don't know. We, we're mainly habits. We're mainly a creature of learned stuff. We, we grow up as babies and we learn all this stuff and we go through the world. So right now, why, why, why am I saying what I'm saying to you? I mean, you just asked me something and I'm answering you. I didn't think about it. Well, maybe I've answered the same question a hundred times. I don't know. But really, it's all, I'm on automatic. And you're on automatic. You've done these interviews many times. You're on automatic. You're not thinking about it. Now, there's something, you know, there's this book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. So there's this whole idea of different things we, we you know, we, we, we to be or not to be, you know, big questions we may think of. But most of the time, we just do stuff. Yeah, And then if you say to me, well, Bernie, why did you say that? I'm not going to be a jerk and say, I have no idea. It just came out. I'm going to give you a deep philosophical reason why I said it to make myself yeah. and, and probably one that's going to end up making you look good. Yeah, <laughs> not, not good with you. It's going to be brilliant. I don't want to be yeah. a person. I want to be brilliant. Okay. Right. You get the yeah. other. So you're going to pick something in your self-image that's going to make you look good. I mean, the, the irony is I grew up with some guys in the Bronx that were real mean, mean son of a guns, okay? And so their images, they're, they're badasses, okay? So one of them was a law, is a lawyer, kind of prominent lawyer down in Los Angeles area. And I, he, I was visiting him once many years ago. I went into court to watch him. And uh, he was defending a mother, an elderly mother, who had, whose son was robbing from her, you know, stealing the money in various ways. And he was so kind and so generous. I couldn't believe it. So when he went out, I said, I couldn't believe you. I've never saw that part of you. He said, it really hurts. (laughs) (laughs) So his self-image, if he gives you a reason, it's how tough and how bad he is. You understand? So we all have our self-mind is I'm a good guy. I'm a nice guy. So my reasons are going to be, you know, smart, good, nice, and all that. Other people, whatever their self-image is, that's, that's the reasons they're going to give you. And that's not, there's no single reason for anything you did. We're so complex. You know, we have we have stuff in us from the cavemen in some way, you know, particles and, you know, whatever's created in the universe, whatever we're made of, those molecules. I mean, they, they, we have so much stuff. We have a history. We have our personal history. I've been around quite a while. I have a personal history of all these things. So when I say yes to someone or no to someone or you, when you ask me to do this podcast, there's a history of 40, 50 other people who ask me to do podcasts. And when I say to you yes or no, it's somewhat colored by that history, even though I may not be conscious about that. Okay. And when you tell me you're from Utah, it's somewhat colored that I'm co-teaching with a guy from Utah. I mean, it's so complicated. So these are all things that enter into it, but I still don't know the reason I said yes or no. Okay. I just do it. And then to not be a jerk, I don't say I don't know. I give you a reason. So right. 
yeah, the point is who cares about it? it doesn't really matter but it does matter in that most cases reasons are excuses they're, they're excuses and for not performing or for getting you justifying something and as long as you use reasons you'll never change your behavior and that's what my concern is so I don't really care. I, you know, in my book, I have a chapter called Reasons of Bullshit, okay? And that I still, I feel that's really true, a good way to look at the world, that there's no one reason for anything a person does. So when you pick a reason, you're making a bias. It may be one of the factors in it, but it's not the reason you did it. And that same reason could be there and you could have not done it or do it. So the best thing in life is to just say what you do or what you don't do without worrying about why. Hmm. It's powerful. Yeah, it's powerful. Yeah, it's a better life. It's, try, here it's, it's one of the hardest teaching points I have. I get a lot of resistance from students in the beginning about it uh, because they're so brought up that they're everything, they're reasonable persons and they, the, the thinking person is reasonable. It doesn't work that way. And, you know, yeah. these tests, people have put people into MRI, FMRI, MRI machines, and they've given them a task, like push a button or something like that. And they uh, they see what goes on. They see where there's activity. They don't know what goes on in the brain, but you see where there's activity in the brain. And the parts of the brain that are used to decide to do the motor function fire before the parts of the brain that are used to get, get the, generate the reason. So the conclusion, in my view, is we do what we do, and then we say what we, we say. If you, if you ask me, I'll say, well, once I know what I've done, I can say it. You know, like people say, say some authors write, how do I know what I think until I write it down? <laughs> right. It's the same idea. It's exactly yeah. the same idea. And the conversation could go in so many directions from free will, whether yeah. we actually have free will, right? Or maybe another one, which is, okay, so given this, that reasons are bullshit and we can explain anything and we're ultimately almost always the one stopping ourselves and so forth. Yes. The direction I'd like to go with it and get your view about is about how we can then change our self-image so that we can get the behavior we desire and without fussing with reasons. Yeah, sure. And the two, the two things in particular I want to ask you about, the one that I love from your book was when you said people vote when they're asked to be voters in greater numbers than if they're simply asked to vote. That's amazing. And, and then the other one is you share a personal story about how you changed your attitude to time. Yes. Yeah. Which I think many people listening, you know, are probably in a similar boat. They're, per, they're chronically late. Yes. It doesn't matter yeah. how important yeah. it is. People. All that. Yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of people. Are. So the late ones is a great example. Yeah. Right. I was on the board of directors of this company in Berkeley and, uh, it's actually the, the, the company that the guy got me on, uh, where he changed my no to yes. I was on the board of that company. Uh, it's actually not that. It was it was a company that was derived from that company. But at any rate, it's in that same stream. Anyway, I was on the board of directors, and invariably, I'd get late to the board meetings. And I'd come in, and I'd say, oh, the traffic was terrible. I'm sorry. Now, the truth is there was traffic. I wasn't lying in that point. But, and they would say, oh, it's okay, Bernie, uh, we're glad nothing happened. But that was a lie on their part because it wasn't okay because they had things to 
do. They have people with lives also, and waiting for me was really not what they came to do. Okay, so I, I realized basically at some point that I ought to. I, I was I was just not leaving early enough. Basically, I was always finding some excuse to do. In those days, I had a teletype in my office, and I'd be teletyping to the big computer in the AI lab, or I would meet a colleague at the elevator and schmooze a little bit before. And I left just so to be enough time to get there. And of course, there was traffic that I didn't count on getting out of Palo Alto. There was traffic on the road to Berkeley. There was traffic in Berkeley, so I was late. And once I got the idea, I should either quit the board or give it more valence in my life that I really wasn't giving it enough respect that that's something I cared about. So I should just decide, do I care to want to be there or I don't? And I said, yeah, I do. I do like it. It's a really interesting experience. I do want to maintain it. So I have to get there on time. And at that point, I changed from the guy who was always late to everything to the guy who's the pain in the ass who's always on time for everything. It just totally flipped my life around. And it was while giving up the excuse that I was, it was the traffic. Giving, once I gave up the reason that it was the traffic, and I was willing to tell myself it was my responsibility to, uh, to get there in time, no matter what, that I had to handle that. And in that case, it wasn't a big thing. I just had to leave a little earlier. And if I got there early enough, I could oogle the co-eds at Berkeley. It was a double, double pleasure. So it didn't matter. You understand? It just, I wasn't doing it. That was the whole thing. And I had a good excuse because there was traffic. And it's that way all the time. It's so interesting. I tell my students, you know, if a student walks in late to class, it doesn't matter what, you know, let's say she comes in and she says, I had a flat on my bicycle, professor. I'm sorry, I'm late. It doesn't matter because if she wanted to be there, if the rule was if you come in late, you flunk the class, if she had a flat or not, she would have been there on time or she wouldn't have come at all. Or if I had an Uzi gun, I machine gun, everyone walked in late, they wouldn't come in late. It's just the price isn't high enough. It's just easier to bullshit and make some flimsy excuse to be polite. But you'll never change your behavior if you believe your excuses. So to answer your question, the way you change is you don't rely on the excuses. You look at the actual situation and you say what it is and you take responsibility for doing it and forget about the reasons. Were you there on time or you weren't there on time? It doesn't matter what the reasons are at all. It's amazing and not something that that I've believed for a good portion of my life, and I think many people don't believe, is is that we can, in fact, change our lives with a single decision, that that power is available to us in every moment. Yeah, it it flips. And it's a self-image. So if you have the self-image, my wife has the self-image, she's always late. So her life is, if we're invited to dinner in someone's house, uh, who maybe lives, say, 20 minutes or half hour from us, she'll get into the bathtub to get ready at the time we're supposed to be at the dinner. Okay, and that's her self-image that she's always late and all that. Now she could change it, you know, but if she chooses not to, she doesn't. But it's the same idea. It's like uh, people have they have like a normal way of acting, and they don't have to do it. They could just they could just change. It's not so hard. I mean, some things are harder, some things aren't harder. But it's much, it's mainly uh, we're habituated in a way of handling stuff. And if it works, it's great. It's fantastic. If you're habituated to something that works for you, that's great. And if it's something that doesn't work for you, there's no 
nothing keeping you from doing it. It's just not, and you know, lateness is so great because everybody, I mean, it's a thing for everybody. The, the other side is funny. Some friend of mine, we now come on time uh, to everything. And uh, we came in and this friend of mine, she said, Bernie, I hate you. I said, why is that? She says, since your book came out, everybody comes on time and nobody <laughs> host, no hostess wants the guests to show up on time. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's funny. The side of the coin. Well, speaking of insights, realizations, decisions that, that you've had that have changed your life or you've used to change your life, if I recall, there's a story you share in the book as well about a walk you took after an argument with your wife. Yeah. Yeah. And you looked up in the in the sky. Will you talk a little bit about that as well? Sure. Yeah. Well, that was a great example. That's that's sort of uh, the whole idea of being right and wrong. And, and the, so the story quickly is uh, I, I had had a big argument with my wife, and I was scheduled to go visit a friend of mine who lived about uh, eight blocks away from me. And I was going to walk over to his house. And it was midwinter, I remember. And it was... A, my wife was ridiculous, it was a terrible argument, and I left, and I'm walking out, and I'm just muttering to myself how stupid she is and how, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> and then I look up suddenly, and there was this, the trees were like in some three, you know, super three-dimensional reality. I mean, it was like a sort of like a acid trip kind of thing, looking at the tree. It just blew me away, and I realized... It was like a moment of wonderment, and I rejected it. I put my head down. I went back into how wrong my wife was and all that. And then you rejected the wonderment. I rejected the wonderment because I was busy being right, and uh, she was being wrong. And I, wonderment had no place in that. <laughs> so I walked about another half a block, and I look up again. At wonderment again. I look down again. I repeated about four times, and then the jerk in me relented. I realized, what the hell am I doing? Why am I hanging on to that argument when this nature is giving me this thing? And then I enjoyed the rest of the trip. By the time I got to my friend's house, I was high as a kite. I was feeling wonderful about life. I don't remember what the argument was about at all, but I do remember that. And every time that time of year comes around, I get a little flashback on that wonderful feeling. But it was this example how I was being such a jerk because I wanted to be, and she wasn't even there. You know, it was in my own head. I was yeah. playing it and making her wrong. And you know, how stupid can you be? So that was a kind of big insight for me. And that gets that that trans. I don't go there in the book, but I must say it does transcend to this whole thing with the people you don't like, people you have uh, bad things. Right? You know, a lot of people I work with have, are very nice to me, but there's some people who are just nasty people, and they've done nasty things. And I could hold on to that grudge. And what and it's the same thing. But if I don't, uh, the same guy, you know. Uh, that's the way he is. I laugh at. I, I really laugh at these people that I used to, you know, run my head and couldn't stand. Them. And now they my I see them. Oh, how are you? Oh, the same old crap going on. You know? <laughs> and I laugh at it. It's 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 just much more life force than it is to to make yourself right. You know? Yeah. Here's a big lesson. And that's again, I had no plan on that. It just came to me from uh, from the world. Yeah, this is beautiful. And and you talk in the book too about the meaning that we impart 
onto our lives. And and you you described it in a way I'd never heard before that I thought was really, really interesting and potentially very useful about how we decide where to start or stop a story, where to put a period. Yeah. And how that can make all the difference. Absolutely. And that's in conflict. I mean, it's really true. At least, you know, you know, if you take a uh, it's funny. I got something from India. I'll tell you about in a minute today. But I, like, if you go to India, like the, the Hindus and the Muslims are killing each other all the time, and they have grievances. Well, during the partition, you someone burned my house down. They cut off the arm of my brother-in-law. They cut, off, and they say, "Yeah, but your guy did this to me for." And it's, it's in Ireland, it's the same thing. You know, with the Irish uh, Catholics and the Protestants, there's a set of grievances that go back in time immemorial. So it depends where you start the story. And you can make the other guy wrong by starting when that person did something terrible to you. And they could say, oh, no, it's you going, well, how about what your grandfather did to him? You know? And it's endless. And so depending where you put the period in the story, you can make it come out any way you want. But that's not the point of it. It's just the point is uh, there's no getting there by figuring out who did something wrong. It's a matter of how you handle what's now, what, what's the situation. And the people who look at that, it's the situation is, if I want to deal with you, it doesn't matter what happened back there. It matter. am I willing to deal with you so that you can have a decent life? And are you willing to deal with me so that I can have a decent life? And if we're both willing to do that, we can have a conversation and we could come to some compromise. We can figure out who owns what turf and who can parade where and all of that stuff. But until I'm willing to make it so that you can exist and have a decent life, we're just going to keep on killing each other. Okay, So that's the period stuff is just to justify your story. So it's the same as a reason. It's bullshit. Depends where you put the period. You're fixing it up to make yourself look good make your side look good. And it's the same thing. Yeah. So the funny thing about India was just, I, this one's a real coincidence. This morning I wake up and I'm looking at my email and I get this thing at LinkedIn. Some kid wants to join my, uh, want, wants to be on my LinkedIn. I don't know what they call friends or whatever, whatever they call it. I don't know what they call it. Your LinkedIn network. LinkedIn, yeah. He wants to be on my network. And it's, I read your book. I loved your book. And I love the part about arranged marriages. He says, because all, being in a country that was subjugated all these years, I always felt I had an inferior culture. And I looked down upon that as being a primitive part. But when you talked about how much you appreciated arranged marriages, it changed my whole outlook towards my culture. And I want to thank you for that. Now, I didn't know I was going to do that. <laughs> I said that I, you know, my experience in India was that arranged marriages were really pretty good things to have in a society. And uh, I know it goes against the common wisdom, which I had as a kid. You know, we all get married for love. There's nothing higher than love, whatever that is. And the range is terrible. And it's, of course, nonsense. So the range is, is, is a pretty good way to do it. Uh, much better than love in many cases. So uh, he, but just to got the man. So it was interesting how this, person who I don't know, he said, I hope to meet you someday. I'd like to meet him. Uh, his What he reports is it just changed his whole view to his culture because he realized someone outside it valued it and didn't look down upon it 
and it isn't this primitive thing that it's been there for a long time for sure, but maybe it's because it works pretty well. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I felt really wonderful about that. Now, I hadn't written, the, putting that in there, thinking I'm going to deal with any Indian's feeling about his culture, but you never know. Sure. Yeah. Well, in your view about life being basically a problem solving activity and one that we can learn to, to do more effi- effectively, we can make the process and the result of that problem solving activity better. I want to go back to what you've talked about, this class that you've taught for 40 winters now. Is it still, is it called the designer in society? Yes, it's called the designer in society. Yes, that's the name. Okay. So will you tell me a little bit about what, why did you create this class? What is, who's it for and, yeah, and why? Sure. Yeah. Well, it, it started way back when, and I can just tell you what I remember, I think. I <laughs> okay. I don't know. I remember being struck by two things. One was there was, and I have one guy in particular in mind, but in those days, when I first came to California in 1962 and 63, 64, People would talk about starting their own businesses, but the, and they wouldn't do it. They would all go work for Hewlett Packard, which was the big fish in the area then, uh, or someone uh, a little bit later, IBM and stuff like that. And they would just talk about starting their own company, and they never would do it. And it just struck me. I mean, I didn't care if you start your own, but stop talking about it if you're not going to do it. And uh, I, I remember there's one guy I knew who actually did leave one of his companies and started. And I bought a case of champagne. I brought it to his house. And I left it for him. He, to this day, he doesn't know why I did it. <laughs> so <laughs> he I, like, he's like, what? I just did. I was just keeping with my self-image. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it just, it just was this whole idea of either doing it or don't do it. You know, don't just have this pipe dream forever. So that bothered me a little bit. And then there was this other thing that bothered me is, People would come to me with things that I thought they should have handled in their life earlier with their parents or their counselor or their priest or their rabbi or whatever it is, kind of things that, you know, personal things. I'm an engineering professor. (laughs) And it just bothered me. And it's just clear that nobody talks about these things in school. We talk about the Romans and the Greeks and <laughs> and the world or this and that and then sociology about experiments with cats and all, but we don't really talk about you know, mice. You know, mice is a big subject. We don't really. So I felt well, uh, people should talk about that as part of their education. So I concocted this class, which had no right being in the engineering school. But by that time, people were breaking windows and uh, sitting in about the Vietnam War. So the, the administration who shouldn't allow me to do it was busy elsewhere. And the fact that I was just changing a class was not the worst thing in their minds. So yeah, and, and how old, how old, you're in your mid-20s at this point? Oh, no. I was, I, when I finished my PhD, I was 29. So I'd say I'm in my early 30s. Okay. So I started this class, which had, two main objectives. It it had a a project in it. The main thing was the projects. The class was just a way to get me to read books. But the main idea was you had to read a book a week, essentially. And and did you prescribe the books or did people choose them? I hadn't written them. Yeah. yeah. And one of them called The The Adjusted American is essentially, my book is a a rewrite of that book, basically. (laughs) 
<laughs> but uh, uh, that was a very influential book on me. And students, it's way out of print, but you can buy it for 50 cents. You'll, you'll enjoy it if you read it. Anyway, the, that's another little shaggy story. But the point simply is the, two pro- the projects were counted. And the project, you get to choose yourself. And it has to be a one, or two, one of two topics. The first one is do something you've always wanted to do in your life and never done. You get it, like selling a company, but not necessarily. But that idea, that experience. Or get rid of a problem in your life. That's it. And you got 10 weeks to do it. And you tell me about it. We choose it in the beginning. You choose it. I scope it with you. You tell me what it's going to look like at the end. or We'll know if you got there or not. And it's your project. It's not Bernie's project. And I'm not grading you for the project. You pass or fail. If you do it, that's it. And the rest of the time, we talk about the books and the other thing. And every once in a while, you do a check-in to the class about your project. And the whole point of the project was, if you do the first one, it's doing something rather than trying to do something or just fantasizing. And my experience is, if you do that and you're successful, it changes your life. And I have a good example. Recently, this guy came in who was a, uh, that's in my book. I start with the story of my friend who was his whole, he was a Marine in, in Ireland and a big officer and all that. And then he quit and he worked for companies. He realized his whole life, he's been a good soldier. He never took command of anything himself. And uh, he worked for NPR and he he went back and his project was to become a producer of of a show. And he did and was successful. Now he's his own consultant and all that. So it was an example where the project gave him the sign of experience or the efficacy, as we say, to move in a direction that he really wanted to do, but was afraid to do beforehand in his life. And this gave him a fortified way to do it and get that experience and it empowered him. That's a real success story of what I had in mind. It doesn't happen all the time. I'm not that magical, but it happens enough of the time to make me feel really glad about it. Okay, so that's one. The other is get rid of a problem in your life. And there's one I talked about in the book that I still cry about every time I see this guy. He still works around here. And it was that he had a terrible relationship with his father. And the name of the game was to fix it up. And he did. And then his father unexpectedly died of a stroke a few weeks later. So, wow. <laughs> so, and there are lots of stories. But that was the, so the whole idea is you don't have to live with, with a pain in your life, you can change it. Whatever it is, you can change it. Whatever it is, people have gotten out of much worse pickles. So you can change it, but you have to have the efficacy, you have to have the confidence or the ability to go for it. You can't just stay home and cry or just pipe dream. So that was the really point of the class. Those two projects were what, one of those was what pointed. But I got to have to occupy them for 10 weeks. And I figured I'd like to read books so I picked a different book every week that I thought would be interesting and relevant. We discuss it, and then we see how that goes to their life. So we don't talk about the books like one would do a criticism of English, you know, the, the punctuation or the, or the themes. It's how does that relate to your life, and how does it, so things like projection, things like reasons, all those things come from experiences in the class. And people go out, they read about it in the book, and then they go out and see how in their life life 
they're using that stuff. So it's sort of behavioral change in a kind of subtle way. So that's the class. And I'd say it's the thing I'm least qualified to teach and the thing that I have done the proudest of in my whole <laughs> career. <laughs> the things I'm the world's expert of, which I teach, which I think I'm not doing as much good to the world as this because anybody, there are a lot of experts in those other things, but this thing has sort of been unique. Although now a lot of people are doing stuff like it and in engineering also. So it's kind of interesting. I didn't set out to pioneer anything, but a lot of people, there's now design your life and all this stuff. People are writing books and very successful with it. And I view those as all outgrowths of what started just 40 years ago. Or so. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. That's wonderful. I, I was just captivated by the way you describe it in the achievement habit saying, in my class, students have designed and built musical instruments, furniture, vehicles, and clothing. They've written books, poetry, and music. They've flown and jumped out of various aircraft, done stand-up comedy, driven racing cars, learned to cook, weld, ten bar, speak new languages, and save lives. They've repaired relationships with parents, siblings, and friends. They've run marathons, lost weight, and braved the wilderness, and clearly much, much more. It's fun to think that this just emerged and has continued for decades. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's really inspiring. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling I'm kind of getting near the end of the string of doing that stuff. So I've actually now giving the class for the first time this year, I'm giving it twice, which I've never done before. Uh, it's with the, <laughs> the most ridiculous time to do it with in Zoom, but we're doing it twice. So we've never, I've never done it more than once in, a, in an academic year. And I figure, well, there's not going to be many more times I'm going to be doing it. So let's cover as many people as I can. So Right on. Yeah. How has the course changed over the decades? Well, the main change is um, I'm now in something called the D school. And uh, originally I was in mechanical engineering exclusively. And the course was listed as a mechanical engineering course. So the kinds of students that came in originally were mainly, occasionally a business school student would walk in or a school from the ed, someone from the ed school or the medical school with some friend told them about it. It was kind of stealth thing. They'd show up. But there was a main bias was people in, in engineering design, mechanical engineering design, which is where I am. Then we started something called the D school, which is speaks to everybody in the university. So there's no particular traditional field there. It's for people in medical law, uh, geology, uh, herpetology, art, music, you name it. We have them all in there. So uh, the population changed totally in terms of its harder to get uh, a lot of business school students in there now, medical students. So, you know, the, the center of mass of the, of the major and interests have changed. So that's the big change. The other changes in the D school, we have a rule, you can't have a class where only one teacher is the teaching, you have to have a team. So I had to get a partner if I wanted to teach in this thing I created. So I've had a partner. Uh, uh, I have two guys who uh, they double team me. They one I get one for a few years, and then the other switches in and all that. So I so there are two of us in there now. Where it's always it was just me alone. Wow is is one of those two the one from Utah that you were referring to? The, the one that I is there I, earlier. I thought you mentioned a professor from Utah or someone from Utah that you. 
that's another, it could be, but it's, I, it's a shaggy story. But one of the two guys has a buddy, he's in the business school, he has a buddy in business school from Utah. And they were teaching a class that was similar, but not quite. So we made up another class, which the Utah guy is in, and this buddy and me. So I teach a class which is similar to it, but not the design of society first. So that's, okay. so that's where the Utah guy is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, good. Well, it turns out that right about the time I learned of your book and I bought, I bought and read your book, I have been teaching for about the last three years a course that I designed. It's a nine-month course that's kind of a how-to-live course. It's you know basically everything from mindfulness to gratitude and time and identity and purpose and you know all this. But what I realized after having taught it for a few years was that yeah, it's one thing to help people you know change their perspective or embrace new behaviors, but if it didn't yield the any specific products, like there were no projects, there were no specific results. It maybe wasn't all that it could be. And so I committed that I would start a program that's nine weeks to help people design and carry out a project. And it is very coincidental that I found your book uh-huh. right as I started laying that out. So I was particularly excited to to learn of your approach and your results. So yeah, it's been very timely. Yeah, it's really good to have people do stuff. Otherwise, you lose it. I mean, it's really hard to, even if you think it's the most brilliant idea in the world, uh, it's hard to hang on to it if you don't use it all the time. So the project gets them to at least apply it once and stuff. And then that habit, if they have it, they apply it to other things and they go away with the, I call it efficacy, you know, they can handle stuff and, uh, yeah. you know, it just... Awesome. Well, with your permission, in just a moment, I want to go ahead and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. And then the other is just before we transition away from from the achievement habit or your life, your work, and is there anything else that that we didn't discuss that you feel might be of benefit to to the listener? Yeah. Well, I think the trying and doing stuff is important. That uh, there's a difference between trying to do something and doing something. And the way I see it is that if you try to do something, it might or might not work, you know, just, but if you're doing something, then even if you hit obstacles, it's going to work. And uh, people confuse the two. And that's really a, a real big issue because if you confuse the two and you hit an obstacle, uh, and it deters you, then you really were trying to do it. You really weren't doing it. Uh, a good example is in the book, the story with the uh, tickets where uh, my wife and I are driving home from San Francisco. And I noticed the, uh, there's a theater, movie theater that has, uh, it's a funky theater. It's kind of run down, but they play movies you've never seen in the world anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of an odd house uh, San Francisco version and there's the hugest crowd I've ever seen in that uh, outside the theater it's like wrapping around the block so I say to my wife oh look and I see in the marquee it's some group I never heard of a music group it's a movie about the group and they're there I said this must be hot let's go and she said no no I'm tired let's go home I want to go to bed and I eventually talk her into going and I say um, I'll drop her off go get some tickets and I'll go find a parking place I come back 10 minutes later she's not in line. She's just standing there like where I dropped her. I said, why why, why aren't you in line? She says, they were sold out. I said, yeah, but why didn't you get to, she says, didn't you hear me? They were sold out. 
I said, stand here, stay here, will you please? And I worked my way down. I got two tickets. And it was a great example of the difference between trying and doing. She was being nice to me. She was trying to get the tickets. She hit an obstacle, sold out. I was doing. It didn't matter. It was an obstacle sold out. I was not not going to go. And I worked my way down the line. And, you know, I would have paid a lot of money, but I didn't. I just got tickets at cost price from someone who's date didn't show up and someone else was going to turn in a ticket. You know, the big crowds, you can get something all the time. But I would have paid a lot. You know, I was going to go no matter what. I was going to go in there. You know, I knew it. It didn't. No, no one was going to stop me from getting in. Now, it turns out my wife was right. It was terrible. We shouldn't have gone. <laughs> but this, that's not the point. The point is that that's, that story shows the difference between trying and doing. And you, you hit a barrier. I have um, a, a story. It's not in the book, but the guy did give me a blurb on the back. He was, uh, I met him when I first came to Stanford. He was in a swimmer. He was on the swimming team, and he had a uh, back injury in the shower. And the surgeon told him, you never he had to have a, a surgery. You're never going to swim competitively again. But an Olympics was coming, and he had been preparing, and he wanted to do it. And he talked to some guy. He actually talked to John Arnold, the guy who hired me. And John told him, well, look, if you want to do it, no one's going to stop you. You know, you got to just do it. So he trained in a reservoir. And he, it turned out he was the last guy on the swimming team to qualify. He just made it. It was between someone. They just picked. And he went to the Olympics, and he won a gold medal, and he set a world record. Okay. And then he came back, and he's been a serial entrepreneur. And he told me, you know, that experience was uh, just just changed me. As you can imagine, he said, every time I've done something entrepreneur-wise, I've hit an obstacle. And it was debilitating in the beginning. But when I worked my way around it, it got me to some better place, which I would have never been before. So the way the obstacle was a great gift for me. And I learned that from my, my, that that accident. And every project in my life that I've done, he's done like 20 companies and stuff has always been in that framework and i think that's the point there's a difference between trying and doing so now there's nothing wrong with trying you know this yoda thing no try only do I <laughs> right. think that's wrong you know, it's good in the movie but it's not real life is try is fine there are lots of things i've tried and i haven't succeeded and it's i'm great i'm glad i haven't succeeded and it was fun you know but doing it, if I'm going to do it, it takes a certain commitment to get beyond the obstacles. It's as simple as that. You know, it's, it's a good story. I'll give you just an example. I went to um, I had gotten some money from some research people in, uh, in Texas and I was supposed to go to a meeting in uh, Dallas uh, to report on the research. And I really didn't want to go. I enjoyed the money, but I really didn't want to go there. And I got to the airport in San Francisco, and it was a miracle. All the flights to Dallas-Fort Worth were canceled because there's been a snowstorm in Dallas-Fort Worth. It was, so I called up, and I said, I'm really sorry. I can't go. I, no flights. And they said, sure, Bernie, we understand. I was off the hook. So I was trying to go. But if my life depended upon being in Dallas-Fort Worth, do you think the fact that the airlines weren't flying would have stopped me? No, of course not. There are lots of ways to get to Dallas-Fort Worth other than on a commercial flight out of San Francisco. And if my life depended on getting to Dallas-Fort Worth, I would have gotten there. Now, the world is tuned up for everyone trying. They didn't, they didn't hold it against me, thank goodness. 
But I realized I was just trying to go there. And if I went, I'd go, I'd do my thing, I'd be a good boy. But it was a miracle. And I wasn't doing, and I was so happy not to do. So I'm not voting that trying or doing is better. What I'm saying is you should know which state you're in and then behave accordingly. This brings up a lot for me, (laughs) actually, about how can we know when we're doing one or the other? Oh, yeah. Well, you you know for sure, because (laughs) if you try and if you defeat, if you have a good reason to stop it, you're trying. Doing is you're not going to stop it. That's all. It's as simple as that. You're going to get there. I mean, if the things that if if you are no longer you didn't accomplish it, and you just and you can change. It's it's not a question of uh, you know like people like Clint Eastwood. You know they wouldn't let him do something in Carmel, so he became mayor and changed the laws. <laughs> That's kind of doing. But there's some people like that. They're, they're like obnoxious about it. You know they don't take no for an answer, especially if they have a lot of money in the family and stuff like that. But basically, uh, he uh, it, most of us will get defeated. Uh, because we want, it's not worth it. If I have to kill you, if I have to kill you to accomplish it, I'm not going to do it. I don't want killing people. And so I'm not, it isn't that I'm saying you have to, once you're going to do it, you're going to do it no matter what. I could say, okay, I'm not going to, the price is too high. I'm no longer going to do it. I was just trying to do it. I'm going to switch and I'm not voting. I'm, and I'm saying it, it, one could be better than the other. The only fallacy is to think you're doing when you're only trying because that's going to let you off the hook. Okay, You don't want to let yourself off the hook because there's going to be everything you're going to do if that's worth doing is going to have obstacles in the way. And you don't want to let the obstacles defeat you. You want to walk around them. And that requires uh, doing. So that's what I'm saying. Now, you know, it's one of these things that's not uh, scientifically uh, defined exactly, but I'd say in your heart you'll know if you're trying to do something, if it's a pipe dream and you're just trying to do it and maybe it'll work, maybe it don't, or if it's actually something you're going to do no matter what it takes. You know, some guys, they'll mortgage their whole family, their whole house. I know a guy, an Irish guy works with me now. He told me the story. He and a partner in London, when they were in London, they decided they were going to start a business in some sort. And without telling their wives, they took out all the money they had in their, ba- their joint accounts, the two guys, and they stuck it into the company. And it was a big success, okay? But that's what you call doing. You understand what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah, for and, sure. So that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work, turn out well, but it, they did it, okay? So that, that's the story of, of, and as I agree, you know, some things are on the margin, but I think it's just good to have that notion of, and that's the Yoda idea, there's no try to just do. I'd say there's, there's a difference between try and do. And it's okay to try and do something. It's It could be more fun than doing it, you see. But don't give up because, like my wife with the tickets, it, it, students at Stanford, it's so great. Some classes are filled. In fact, my class, it, it used to get filled up in the old days. So I had uh, people, uh, I put their driver's license in a hat and we'd pick out and the ones whose license got picked out are in, the others are out. This one woman didn't make it. So most people go away, you don't hear from them. She wrote a poem. She talked to my colleagues. She just wouldn't go away. And uh, she came to the next class. You know, I kicked her out of the first. She came to the next class. And someone who I had let in didn't show. So she was in. Wow. 
Yep. She's now the head of a company. She just told, sent me a Christmas thing. They raised several hundred thousand dollars for you know, it's a it's a good medical company giving things to people in the poor poor world. It's just this example, and her she just wouldn't stop. Most students, you'd say the class is full, they go away. If you come back the next day, there might be a space. You see, so that's trying. They try to get in the class, which is fine. But if you really want to get in the class, you write a poem. You do what it takes, not obnoxiously, but yeah. So that's good to know, you know. And 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 that's right back to that thing we talked talked about a little earlier about showing up. Yeah. Right about. Yeah. It's exactly that. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you for that. I'm I'm really grateful that you shared that. Okay. So the enlightening lightning round is a series of brief questions. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. My aim for the most part, is to simply ask the question and stand aside. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... Crapshoot. <laughs> okay. Question number two. Here I'm borrowing uh, the famous technologist Peter Thiel's question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Most big things happen accidentally. Hmm. Okay. Question number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? I am here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Question number four. What book, other than one of your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? That's the one I mentioned to you earlier, The Adjusted American. Mm. Okay. Why that book? It's a really tour de force book that didn't do well. For whatever reasons, I don't know. Uh, but it touches on so many important things in life, like love and marriage, or reason, not such reasons, but uh, uh, self-image, uh, 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 anger, uh, this whole idea of projection. It has a lot of the basic things in psychology that I feel are really important in life. So that's why the book, the other book I do, I'll give you two. You said I could talk as long as I want. Sure. Is uh, uh, the book, uh, I think it's East Into the Night uh, by Beryl Markham. And that supposedly was Ernest Hemingway's favorite book, according to his son. It's also a book that didn't do well the first time around. And that's just so beautifully written even though she was supposed to be illiterate. So it's not clear if she wrote it or her husband, but it's a wonderful read. So the second one is just a wonderful read. It's a pleasure. Uh, I wish I could write a book as beautiful as that. And the first one is just a great thing to guide, learn stuff in life about. Awesome. Thanks for that. Okay, question number five. So you have traveled all around the world. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel, to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? It's very simple. One carry-on suitcase per person only. Mm. That's okay. The, that's the rule. Even for a year, for a year, one, no matter how long you're going, including a year, one carry-on suitcase only per person. Wow. All it right. Life very enjoyable, believe me. Yep. Question number six. What's something you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? I guess I, I uh, kind of changed from uh, being a typical New York guy, critical of everything and uh, negative, seeing the, seeing the half-empty side of stuff, 
to being more of a California guy, seeing <laughs> careful and uh, not being as critical and being more supportive. All right. Question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? I'd say that America is just a small part of the world and that the world is full of a lot of wonderful people and places. And, you know, this American uh, specialism or whatever that's fictitious there is uh, not... It's something we should try and live up to, but it's not something that's realized really in that uh, there's a lot of special places and people in the world and we should enjoy more being part of it more. Yeah, beautiful. Question number eight, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about? It doesn't even need to be the most, but what's an important or useful thing you've learned about making relationships work? Not worrying about being right or wrong. <laughs> yeah. Is that now you've been you've probably been married about sixty years as well. Yeah, is more, that right? More than, way over sixty. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's awesome. I was a child bride. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. And the the last one here is about money. So aside from compound interest, what's something important or useful you've learned about money, or what's something you're always sure to do with it, or you never do with it? I'd say money is overrated in some ways if you have enough of it. Uh, and if you don't have enough of it, it's, it becomes in a way more important maybe than you should make it. But uh, so I'd say the relationship to money is uh, it's complicated and it's mainly uh, it's inherited a lot, which is funny. There's this funny story. My wife is very frugal. And there's this funny story, I think it's in the book, where my son, he was like five years old, and the doctor asked him, do you want to have, uh, he was ill, and she said, do you want to have a shot, or do you want to have a pill? And he said, whichever is cheaper, <laughs> five-year-old kid. Now, where did he get that from? He got it from his mother, <laughs> you know. So Been listening to somebody, yep. Yeah, so, and he's still that way. I mean, it's so funny. So it's it's kind of funny that we inherit a lot about it and it's not functional, our attitude about it. So I'd say the most, uh, I, I'd say the most important thing is to be appropriate with what your circumstances are and not overrated or underrated. Awesome. All right, thanks for that. And speaking of money, one of the things I have done to express my gratitude to you for making time to have this conversation with me, to share some of your insights and experiences with, with me and everyone listening, is I have gone online to Kiva.org, which I know originated from a couple of students at Stanford, the microlending site. And I have made a $100 microloan to an entrepreneur in Cambodia, uh, a woman named Nath, who's 59 years old, and she will use this money to help support her kids' education. So thank you for giving me a reason to, to do that. Thank you. Okay. Awesome. Well, congratulations. You have survived the enlightening lightning round and we are almost through the interview. Many academics never write a popular book. They never write for a general audience, but you've managed to break that break with that kind of tradition. How and why? Well, it's funny when you say that my first book I ever wrote was a very technical book. It was 500 pages of equations, uh, essentially, <laughs> and it got reviewed as the best book of the century or the best book ever written in that field, and it maybe sold 200 copies. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that's funny. So it's, and I'm proud of it, and I'm really glad I wrote it. 
but uh, it's a different world than this book. Yeah, yeah so, for sure. Yeah, well, this is just, um, I mean, the funny thing with this book is uh, I had a sabbatical coming, and um, as I've been around for a long time, so I've had a lot of sabbaticals. And I worked out this perfect thing where my wife and I go with carry-on luggage around the world. We, we, I set up something for two months in six different countries. We spent two months. Every time they get tired of seeing us in the same clothes, we moved to a new country. <laughs> <laughs> and it was wonderful, and I loved it. And we did that multiple times, and we get to live all over the world. And then I told my wife, I have this sabbatical coming. She says, look, I'm not, I'm not going with you. I'm just tired of traveling. She's different than I am. She's a homebody. She's an artist. She likes to work in her studio. Uh, I'm not, you can go, but I'm not going. So I, well, I'm not going to leave my wife for a year. I can go back and forth. And so what am I going to do? If I hang around here, I'm just going to waste the year. Well, all right, I'll write a book. Uh, so what book should I write? Well, there's this colleague in Japan who wanted to do a book on robotics and wanted me to put something in about creativity. I could do that. I did and I started talking to people who are authors and no resolution came. And then September 1st came was the beginning of my sabbatical. I got up at six in the morning. I went into my desktop computer without knowing which book I was going to write <laughs> and what. And this, the, chief, the book poured out of me. It wasn't called The Achievement Habit at the time, but the book poured out of me because the experience of the designer and society was so strong in me that it was a no-brainer in a way. Uh, and it uh, just came out. And my hesitancy was, who would care? It's my thing. It's my trip. Who's going to care what Bernie Roth does? And it turns out it was powerful. But, but you know, it was a lot of knowing when I was doing it. I didn't know... And I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a publisher. I just wrote it. And I never had a problem getting a book published, technically. It was, and then when I hit this world, I figured I better get an agent. So I had the book written the century before my agent. And then she rewrote, and I had to rewrite the book because she decided a different uh, tack. But yeah, it was a great experience. And uh, so it was just one of these things that uh, I fell into it, really, just wanting to fill the year with something new and creative and not wanting to just be stuck at home doing the same thing or, or that I always do. Wow. That's, that's awesome. And I love that it's so congruent. It's the, it, the embodiment of what you're teaching of doing yeah. versus trying, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. 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 That's awesome. How did you, how did the connection with the agent come about? Yeah, well, again, it's the same thing, you know, coincidence. I didn't make all this up to prove, <laughs> <laughs> but the answers are exactly congruent with what's going on. I I sent the book to a few people. I asked some of my friends who write to give me their agent. Interesting, some treated like a zero sum game. If they gave me their agent game name, they would lose something. Surprisingly, people like I never expected would behave that way. And people who are the most acquisitive gave me the racist thing. I mean, that was really interesting to see how it sorted out. But anyway, nothing led to anything. So uh, there's a guy who works with me who works, was it was the uh, design editor for the Washington Post. And um, he put together a board for a little thing he was doing. And he got a guy who was his boss, who's now a big shot in uh, some publishing corporation who works for Murdoch. <laughs> and the guy came for lunch, and I asked my friend if it would be okay if I asked 
his former boss about an A. He said, yeah, go ahead. So I asked the guy, and he was really nice about it. He says, yeah, I know a really good agent. She's in New York. Send me something, and I'll send it to her. So we sent, I said this, and he sent it on. We connected. So it was this crapshoot. If the guy hadn't come to lunch, I would have never found that agent, which I'm very happy. Maybe we would have found another one. I don't know. But it was just this coincidence, this guy, and he was giving. He didn't have to be. He was just very nice about it. And it clicked. And then I would happen to be in New York a month or so later. So I went down, met her for a drink, and we, we hit it off. And uh, I still deal with her. She's a good friend. Yeah. That's awesome. That's great. What was your process like for getting the book done in terms of outlining yeah. you know, the structure of the thing? Did you give yourself a page count or a word count to write every day? What was that like? Yeah, it was get up at six in the morning. I mean, the tradition around my house is we, we stay up very late and we go get up late and then I make breakfast and then I go into school late and I work until I come home for a late dinner. And that's the truth. So I changed the tradition somewhat. I told my wife, no more breakfast, the price for not going on sabbatical with me. <laughs> and I got up at six in the morning and I didn't surface until about 10 or 11 in the morning when she would start to be awake and all that. So I worked for like five hours or six hours every day. And then I do the rest of my life, which was sabbatical, wasn't much fun, but I'd be with her, you know, be present. And uh, there was no real outline. I just started writing and it just poured out of me. And, you know, I re reshuffled stuff and made up chapters. So as you write, you, you create. So uh, I, I, but I didn't, I didn't know where I was going really. I see I had, I'd say one of the guides was the class. So the class is 10 weeks and there's a book every week, as I said, and there's sort of a idea behind each book that's there. So I used that as sort of a, a guide as to which way I would go, but not literally, but just sort of vaguely. If I was stuck, I'd say, well, I haven't done anything about projection. So let me, uh, let me, that's important. Or I'm trying and doing or making is good. So I, I'd like make a heading and I'd say, and then I just spew out all my experiences that I could about it. And then I wrote, and then I had a much bigger book. And, you know, when it got to the agent and the editors, they took out a lot of stuff. Like I had a lot of, I do a lot about remembering names. That's very important. And with students, uh, you know, how to get, how to get the class to know each other's names. Stuff. And I had a lot in that and they, cut it out. The, the editor didn't like it. I thought it was good. But uh, so, you know, it's a give and take with, with the editors when you, when you act, what, what ends up in the book. Uh, but, uh, you know, I had it one way and then my agent sort of reshuffled it. <laughs> for, but basically the content was there, but it was in a different way. So, uh, uh, it, it's a, the, the living, it's, it's a, basically it's a, to answer your question more succinctly, it's a living process and uh, where you're going depends where you are and what the next step is. It seems to appear uh, out of the blue when you're going or you look something up on the internet or you find out you had a story all wrong. I had the story about, uh, there's a story about the uh, this bike crew at a, at a uh, Rolling Stones concert in California. Some guy was knifed uh, 
Oh, this was the Altamont thing? Altamont concert, yeah. So I've been writing, I had a whole thing up for years. I've been talking about that story where the guy thought his bike was more important than anything else. And it turns out I had it all wrong. You know, I looked it up on the web. It was a whole different thing to what that than, than I had always believed in it. So it changed, you know, went out, it was gone. So I, mean, that's, I must say, this is like the best time in the world to write a book because of the internet. You don't have to go to the library. I never once went to the library. Yeah. Everything from my desktop, I could look up everything. Everything I sort of vaguely remembered. Uh, it, it's just amazing that, that we live in this world now. It makes it so easy to to get stuff. You know, it's too much. Yeah. Stuff, but yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. When you say that you would wake up at six and write till 10 or 11, did you do that seven days a week or did you give yourself weekends off or something else? Yeah, yeah. I don't really remember exactly. It was a bunch of years ago. So I, I would, I'd say I did it every day. You know, there's no real weekends in my life. You know, I live on the campus. It's work and living. It's just a mishmash. So I, there's nothing special. Well, I mean, what is special? I bike ride on Sunday. So I know I at 10.30 on Sunday, I meet my buddies and we go for a long bike ride. So I know I didn't ride Sunday past about nine if I did. Okay. But other than that, I have no fixed point in my life <laughs> if I'm on sabbatical. So I, I can't say every day, but it was almost every day. And then I wasn't a jerk about it if we had to go somewhere or we went up to see my son. One of my sons lives in San Francisco. So we'd go up there or if we went away for a few days. So I would say I should refer every day that I was home and I had nothing else planned, I would get up and do it. But And I wasn't... Uh, you know, religiously fanatic about it. I, if something else came up, I would do it. But it was mainly my activity. Awesome. Well, what advice from all you've learned in all your years of of writing, communicating, using the written word, publishing books, some that are the greatest in the century, but only sell 200 copies, others that yeah. Yeah. get broadly distributed. Over reprinted it after it went out of reprint. So that's funny, even though I don't know how many they sold. I'm sure they didn't sell many. It was originally published by North Holland Press, Elsevier. And uh, it's a funny story, but it's, and I'm proud of it. I'm really, you know, it's just a limited market. And uh, yeah, it's funny. No, that, that's awesome. What, what advice, what, is maybe kind of a final yeah. thought to conclude the the interview. If there's some advice or encouragement you would give anyone who's in the process of writing a book, or maybe there is something they've been thinking about for a long time, but haven't taken steps to do, what would you say to them? You know, doing is everything is the, you know, you have to do it. You can't just think about it. Uh, you know, I've heard a funny story. A guy sent me an email from Florida. He says, you know, I commute to work. I have an hour and a half each way. And uh, I'm listening to your book as I commute back and forth to work. And he says, I really want to start a business. And your book is giving me such valuable advice and all that. Can you recommend other books for me to read? So what do you think <laughs> I answered him? Stop reading and start, start go out and start a business. So that's the same thing with the book, really. You, 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 you can't prepare. I, as I said, I took months to try and figure out which book I was going to write. And I talked to a lot of authors and it didn't, didn't get me anywhere. You yeah. have to put your butt in the chair and you have to start writing. 
And it doesn't matter if what you write is crap or whatever, it will get there if you keep working on it and reworking it and stuff. And, you know, some people rework their book 40 times. You know, there are astronomical numbers that some authors quote. I, I, yeah. did, I, I didn't do that. I did it twice or something. But, you know, you, you, you sort of make a draft. And there's some people, I guess there are different styles of people. So some people uh, agonize over every word and every sentence has to be perfect. And there are people like me who just write <laughs> and don't worry about how the quality is until they get a chance to go back over it. So my style is to just spew as quickly as I can and let one idea trigger another idea. And I don't type quickly, so I many times I couldn't type quickly enough to get it down, down fast enough. Uh, it just poured out of me. And uh, it just builds on itself. And that's my style. And, uh, but, uh, and it works. It works. Yeah. It works. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Let me ask you if people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, I know they can visit achievementhabit.com. There's a website for the book. Yes. But what else would you suggest people do if they want to learn more about you or learn more from you or connect with you? Well, there's a lot of stuff on the web that I, you know, I just did a thing in, in a, for a workshop in Rome for 15 minutes or something. And uh, they didn't ask me, but it's on the web. <laughs> wow. So, uh, you know, I guess if they just Google me, they'll find a lot of stuff. But uh, other than that, I don't know. You know. There's the book website. Be careful. Don't use the the. Someone ripped off the the. So it's just uh, achievementhabit.com. Not the, uh, I, I don't know. what what. I mean, if someone had something specific that they want to talk to, they can email me. It's, uh, I'll try and respond if I can. And LinkedIn, we talked about that. People are finding you on LinkedIn. That's, oh yeah, link, I, I hardly use it. Though. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I joined these social networks because I don't want to be not nice to my friends. And I really don't, I belong, I don't use them at all, hardly, hardly ever. I'm just an old-fashioned email guy. Well, Bernie, this has been a privilege. I've, I feel really grateful to have connected with you. Uh, I love your book. I do want to tell you this before we uh, sign off here, that I, as someone who facilitates workshops and events, I personally love the stuff that you included as activities. And I actually use a different color highlighter for that stuff. Uh -huh. And some of it I, I think I'll incorporate, including the things about names about helping and how you get people in a circle and stuff like that. So for what it's worth, this one reader found a lot of value in that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it a lot. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones. There's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep 
into every area of your life. Explore life's big questions. Create answers for yourself in community. Get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 